The Bible reading uh, this morning comes from the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 8. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. If any of you has a dispute with another, do not dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the the Lord's people. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Well, uh, recently um, in Australia, we've had a lot of focus on um, a lot of anger because of gender inequality and Um, the sexual abuse of women. Uh, A lot of anger has been focused on the Attorney General, Christian Porter, for his alleged rape 
um, on Liberal staffers for their degrading um, behaviour in Parliament House and on the Prime Minister for his weak response. We've heard the story of Brittany Higgins and reports from the late woman who accused um, Porter and other women like former ALP MP uh, Kate Ellis who just published a book called Sex Lies in Question Time where she interviews different women from um, par Australian Parliament and their experience of, uh, you know, uh, prejudice and inequality in the Parliament. You can, you can easily see in this situation going on right now in Canberra, the way it works when a community becomes disgusted at the behaviour of certain people within the group. People who have committed morally outrageous acts. People want justice. People want the perpetrator removed. Moral philosophers talk about this purity, disgust, dimension of community justice. Just like when you go to the fridge and you pull the milk out of the fridge and you pour it and you didn't check the use-by date and it's off and you take a mouthful and it's, and it's gone off and you spit it out because that's your body's impulse to remove the, the gross off milk. In the same way, the purity disgust dimension of community justice describes what happens when certain people infect the community and they threaten the moral purity of the community, of the tribe, so the tribe wants to remove them and to, and to kick them out. So, that, so now Scott Morrison has fired at least one of those Liberal staffers and others might roll, you know, might go soon. There was one MP just yesterday who was not kicked out but reduced with his responsibilities. Many are calling for Christian Porter to go. And even yesterday, hashtag Scotty must go was, was trending on Twitter. Genesis 1.27 says, we human beings are made in the image of God. And that means that just like God, we demand justice. There is a true and right order to the universe, to the way human beings should treat each other. And when that goes wrong, we get angry because we're made in God's image. That's why we're made. God's wired us up that way. But the thing is, we're not God, and so and what we are, what Genesis also tells us is that we're flawed and selfish and sinful, and so we're completely inconsistent about this whole thing, about how we apply our sense of justice. We are inconsistent about what we get angry about. We are inconsistent about what we demand from others, and especially, and this is where we're real experts, we're inconsistent about what we expect of ourselves. We lie, we cheat. We conceal, we have double standards, and we get brilliant at not looking too closely at our, ourselves. We don't want to get kicked out of the tribe, and we don't even want to consider that option. But then at the same time, if you look at our part of the world, Western society, we are forever taking each other to court. We're suing each other, we're resolving family disputes, we're resolving work disputes, personal injury, defamation. And so our passage points this morning to the elephant in the room, which is that churches also struggle with this inconsistency of applying justice. Church members can be engaging in all kinds of outrageous behaviour and no one in the church even says anything. Churches are often a don't ask, don't tell culture. But then on the other hand, churches can become fully litigious um, as members take each other to court. 
We even have a member of our church who's a lawyer that works with churches, and that's what she spends her whole time dealing with. What are we to do? What is the right approach? The Corinthian church had the wrong approach in many startling ways. And from Paul's correction of them, we learn about what to do for ourselves. So let's look at that. First of all, let's look at the, uh, the fact that churches should address their sin problems because church holiness really matters to God. So look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out your fellowship, the man who has been doing this? So they had all kinds of weird sins going on in the Corinthian church. And this, there's this situation, a man sleeping with his probably his stepmother and they didn't do anything about it. Would Paul do anything about it? They thought probably he wouldn't because he's you know, a long way away. He's having to write letters to us. If you know the famous story, Greek story of Oedipus, you know that this is a bit of a theme in Greek culture, sons and mums. Uh, sometimes in ancient Greek culture this happened because uh, Greek men often married very young women and so what happened was if their wives died then they'd marry another young woman and they could even be the same age as their sons. And so this kind of issue became common. In this case, it sounds like it was two people in a consenting relationship but, and, and his stepmother probably not part of the church. That's why Paul doesn't actually address her. He just addresses the man. Incest was actually fairly common. And yet it was actually against the law of Moses. Leviticus 18 verse 8 says, Do not have sexual relations, relations with your father's wife. Just to be clear, that would, be, would dishonor your father. And actually, it was illegal under Roman law too. So it was illegal at two levels. People punished with incense, incest under Roman law were banished to an island. And uh, Paul said, not even the pagans tolerate this. So what Paul is saying should not be surprising to them. But the Corinthians were boasting in it, Paul says. When you are arrogant about your sin, all this does is drive home your guilt even more. The worst thing you can do in court is, if you were charged with some kind of crime, is to go, yeah, wasn't I awesome? You know, because what will happen is the judge will go, well, you're guilty, and not only are you guilty, but I'm going to send you away for a long time because you're not even remorseful. Likewise, condoning someone else's sin sort of um, associates you with the sin and you share in their guilt to a certain extent. So notice that even the liberal politicians right now are reluctant to show too much support for Christian Porter. They're sort of holding back. Scott Morrison's shown a little bit of reserved support, but now he's starting to back away from that because they don't, they don't want to be associated with his crime, potential crime, his alleged crime. It's particularly difficult for communities when the person accused also is powerful, like in the case of the Attorney General, or rich. And this is possibly the case with the man Paul's talking about. Possibly he's one of their influential members. Perhaps he tithed a lot of money. And so for his status and wealth, they didn't want him to be publicly shamed, you know, could be the case. Maybe they just liked him. Paul wished the Corinthians would discipline him, but so far they hadn't. So Paul said that even though he wasn't there in physically, he was there in spirit, you know, he was, he was kind of there thinking about them all the time and praying for them, and he would at least condemn the man in spirit. 
So the Corinthians, you think of them as like relativists. They were relativistic about moral standards. They just let their members choose their own lifestyles and let them express themselves according to what makes them feel good. There are many progressive churches like that today. This is not what the gospel teaches. God isn't wanting people to be just doing what they want. He wants obedience. He wants self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus says, if, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away. Of course, churches can go to the other extreme. That's what sometimes we're used to, where they're completely uh, moralistic. And in these churches, people try and behave using willpower and um, the fear of punishment and public shaming. And this doesn't work either. This doesn't lead to any kind of goodness or obedience. That's not what God wants. It's only when we let the grace of God into our hearts that God's grace teaches us to say no to our passions, as Paul writes in Titus 2 verse 12. God's grace gives us a different set of appetites and longings. What Paul is making clear to the Corinthians is that churches should address their sin problem because holiness really matters to God. God desperately wants church communities to be holy. In fact, because church holiness matters so much to God, excommunication and also disassociation are appropriate forms of, of discipline. Of, they're, they're appropriate courses of action. Because churches don't want to be like sourdough with bad yeast, you know, where the bad yeast is the unchecked sin that spreads through the whole dough and corrupts the church. It will lead to a bad batch of dough, says Paul. And that's what the Corinthians had become. They'd become a bad batch of dough. If you have an infected body member, sometimes the doctors, the best course of action is just to lop that limb off because you don't want the whole body infected. And excommunication is where people are kicked out of the church because of their unrepentant gross sin. It is removing the bad yeast to save the rest of the dough. It's amputating a gangrenous limb to save the body. Jewish courts were allowed to practice excommunication for any crime for which the biblical sentence was death such as consensual incest, like in our case in this passage. This left the physical part of the sentence to be carried out by God. You know, when you read in Leviticus all those sentences to death, what you've got to realise is that it was rarely applied, punishment of death. It did get applied sometimes, and you see one or two examples in the New Testament where there's execution by death, but mostly what was applied was excommunication. But for Paul, excommunication was a form of restorative justice. The hope was that through excommunication, the, the man will then realise what he'd done wrong and then come back and be repentant. And he'd come back in humility. Like when a child goes into time out, the hope is that not they leave, they leave the fun of the family and the, what the family's doing and they spend some time away and return restored. That's the hope. Having learnt their lesson doesn't always work. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 20, Paul says that he handed Hymenius and Alexander over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. The idea was that they'd learn and return. In a similar way, Paul wants the man in Corinth restored to the church so that his spirit might be saved on the day of judgment, on the day of the Lord. He doesn't want him to go to hell. He doesn't want the man to keep going down this direction and just completely turn his back on God and be unrepentant and not give a staff. 
He wants him to return. So the Corinthian church should kick him out to ram home the message and disassociate themselves from him. In an earlier letter to the Corinthians, which we don't have anymore, it's amazing to think there was another letter, but Paul refers to it, he already had written to them about not associating with immoral people. And he says it here too in verse 11. You must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. It's not that they can't hang around with people outside the church who have a different ethic or a different sexual ethic or who behave this way because that would be impossible, Paul says. You'd have to fly to the moon to, to be able to escape that. We're not here as Christians to judge um, non-Christians, but there's an appropriateness to Christians keeping each other accountable. It's God's job to ultimately judge all people, but we should keep each other accountable within the church, and sometimes that involves exercising discipline. But of course, we have to be very careful of hypocrisy, don't we? As Jesus said in Matthew 7, you don't want to be the person who points out the speck of sawdust in your sister or brother's eye only and not realise the, the massive plank in your own eye. Deal with your own sin first, he says, before you judge that sin in others. And so that's why systems of accountability in church is really good. Checking in on each other, being open and vulnerable and talking about your struggles is really healthy. As long as it's done in a posture of trust and, you know, gentleness and grace and confidentiality. But what Paul says is that if a person doesn't want to be accountable and they sink into gross sin and they're not repentant, then excommunication and disassociation is an appropriate form of discipline because church holiness matters to God. Now, I have to admit, I've never excommunicated anyone. I've had people I've removed from leadership. And I've found that often, though, you don't, I don't have to, because most of the time, people remove themselves, or they even kick themselves out of the church. They wouldn't think that that's what they're doing, but it's kind of effectively what happens when somebody decides to kind of basically live in a way that they know is contrary to what um, the Bible teaches and what God wants, often they just back away from the church community because they find it too hard to go to church to be reminded of their sin. And as a pastor, I, I have to walk a really careful pastoral line always because we're all sinners, including me. So when do I make the call of when somebody is deserved of excommunication? Well, sometimes it's obvious, in the, like in the case of, uh, you know, an ongoing relationship of incest. That's kind of obvious. And if the person's not really wanting to admit it or, or, or repent of it, in the case of abuse, it's really obvious. Somebody's abusing someone or, you know, there, there are cases there where you have to ask someone to leave the church as well as go to the cops. But I know that at any moment in any congregation, there'll be varying levels of sin and obedience. It's happening right now in this room. And my goal is that every person in the church is pointing their life towards Jesus. Whether they have made great progress with obedience or not very much progress, at least if they're pointing themselves towards Jesus, then that is what ultimately we are to be wanting as a church, as, as Christians. If a person wants to be part of the congregation but is not a Christian, that's also great. There are often people who are involved in our congregation who are not Christians or who are or just thinking about it or unsure, just, you know, enjoy the community but not believers in Jesus. And those people are welcome too. Everyone's welcome. 
In a sense, none of us deserve to be part of the church. We're all weak and helpless sinners. But the thing is, we're also more accepted and more loved by God than we even realize. And that's what we've got to remember as we're reading through this and thinking through the question, should I be excommunicated? We have to remember, God loves you. God knows your sin. He knows exactly the sins you know about yourself and even the sins you don't even realize you're doing. He wants you to repent and turn away from your sin. And he loves you so much that he offers his free grace and forgiveness over and over and over again. But this doesn't mean that sin shouldn't go unchecked. Freedom to sin and live in your own way cheapens grace. It cheapens Jesus' death on the cross. You might say, but what about my human rights? Surely I have the right to live as I want to live. Surely I have the right to be my true self. Well, that's what the Corinthians thought. And Paul says, no. He says, holiness is even more important than your privileged rights. Because that's what they actually had this issue. If you look at chapter 6, verse 1 to 8, they were a privileged, nouveau reach church. They were obsessed with their rights. So there's this bizarre situation that they don't even like have any kind of church discipline internally, and yet they're taking each other to court, to the secular courts, and suing each other, demanding their rights. You've got to remember, Roman society was notoriously litigious, and the nouveau riche Corinthians were a prominent example of this. They sued each other, usually over property. But like in the West today... The rich got a much better deal in the courts than the poor did. For the same crime, a rich aristocrat might be banished, but a poor person's crucified. So the legal system was easily abused by the wealthy. And if a poor person offended a rich person, they're probably going to lose their life. And the perception of the poor was that the Roman legal system was like a spiderweb that you get caught in, and then you can't escape. And it's a little bit like that now, in, even in Australia, it seems like privileged, powerful people get a much better deal in the court system than the poor and marginalised. So this whole discussion that we could go to in our head of demanding our rights to live as we want to live is very much the behaviour of wealthy, nouveau-rich, Western, privileged people, whereas the poor and the marginalised, they're just trying to stay alive. So Paul says to the Corinthians, why do you allow the secular Roman judges deal with disputes in your church, but you don't allow the church leadership internally to deal with issues of discipline. It was interesting, in the Roman Empire, they allowed the religious communities, the synagogues, to deal with internal matters of justice. And the church could carry this on and did carry this on, but the Corinthian church didn't really engage with that. Paul turns to the Christians and reminds them of their future status, saying this weird thing, that one day they would judge the world and angels... And, uh, you know, we read that and go, what? And so he's saying, if you're going to one day judge the world and angels, surely you can deal with internal matters in your church. This is a relatively obscure teaching, and, it's, and it comes from the Greek translation of the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 22, uh, which says that judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And it's discussed in many Jewish texts, this concept and I don't really know what it means, but in, the same, in some way, God's people will be involved in the end judgment somehow. That's what it kind of, kind of is supposed to mean. But Paul says to them, if you can't deal with internal matters yourselves and, and have, you have to go to the secular courts, then you are 
in a terrible place as a church. You are dysfunctional and you're um, bringing a bad name to the church and to God. What must the rest of the town think of you, church, suing each other all the time and having people having incest? I mean, what, what must they think of you? Last week I heard a story about a church from Melbourne that was very divided. It was an independent church and they wrote their own constitution, which is always the alarm bell should go off already. And um, what, one of the things they wrote was um, the, the chair of the, of the council of the church wrote into the constitution that he could not be removed from his post. <laughs> um, and anyway, this church had had a series of pastors who had been sacked by the chair. So the pastor would come and stay for five years and then they'd be sacked. And then another pastor, five years and sacked. This went on and on for many years decades apparently and then one day this one pastor pushed back and he was <laughs> he was getting sacked and he said no there's no just cause for me being sacked and he refused to go and so then the church split half went with the pa- the, the pastor and the other half went with the chair of the board and they refused to let go of the the church itself like so it's not that they split and left they split and stayed and so this is literally what happened they had a church service. When it got to the songs, half stood on one side and half stood on the other and they sang two different songs because they couldn't compromise. And then the, the chair of the board called the cops at the end of the service. The cops came and they just looked at them and said, we're not going to do anything here. This is your issue. Deal with it. And they just looked stupid. This church had problems with bullying and power and control issues and the sin was left unchecked. And it was embedded into the constitution even. (laughs) And then it made this church in Melbourne categorised by hate and rage rather than categorised by grace and love. The bad yeast had infected the dough. Churches have to have a way of dealing with internal sin. And the best way is to keep each other accountable. I know there are different groups in our church that meet together and keep each other accountable by asking questions and maybe some of you do that with one-on-one people. It's a really good thing to do. We need to be transparent with each other. We need a posture of humility and grace so as to spur each other on into holiness. Because the problem is we're always going to fall short. We will always be struggling with one sin or another. Sometimes we struggle with many sins all at the same time. And that's why we need Jesus. It's through the knowledge of his love and grace that we're able to start to get self-control in some of these areas that we struggle with. Today is Palm Sunday. And this is the day when we see Jesus welcomed into Jerusalem on a donkey, hailed as a King Messiah. But within a few days, the people would turn on him. He would be betrayed by Judas to the authorities. He would receive an unfair trial. And the crowd, who only days earlier had welcomed him in, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, at the end of the week, they'd be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And so this king that was welcomed in at the end of the week was exiled. He was cast out to die with the thieves. Jesus was exiled and cast out of the community. So we who deserve to be excommunicated and banished could be brought back in. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
and he took on the punishment that we deserve, he was cast out from his father's love to the grave and he descended so that we could be forgiven and brought home to God. That's how much God loves you. And that's how much I think we should be focusing on what we should be focusing on this morning. As we go home, let's remember the Jesus who looks at us and loves us and who demands holiness. Let's pray. Lord God, heavy stuff here to deal with, but we thank you that you've given us all that we need to be a holy church. Thank you that when we look at you and bask in the wonder that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are able to actually grow in holiness ourselves, that your gospel gives us the power to change. Amen.